If you haven't grabbed notes, there's still some available on the front or back information table. This is another reason why you should join small groups. You guys like to fellowship anyway. Getting you back to your seats is, I need a sheepdog is what I need. That's good. It's a good problem to have. As you make your way toward your seat, let's open up with a word of prayer and just ask God to teach us this morning. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for its clarity and its practicality. Uh, Despite the fact it was written uh, so much of it thousands of years ago, it is still just applicable today. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We pray that your word would speak clearly. Uh, Lord, we're not interested in a man's interpretation. Lord, I just want to present what you have already said. And so, Lord, help us to lay all of our presuppositions or preconceived ideas aside, and may we look at who Jesus says he is. And, Lord, may we embrace it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're, we left off at verse 17. We're actually going to pick up there again um, as we uh, make our way through this chapter. And the, the last part of this chapter is an incredible explanation by Jesus himself concerning who he is in his person and position as God in the flesh. It was, the year was 2004. It was the uh, NFC wildcard playoff game, and the Seattle Seahawks were taking on the Green Bay Packers. They had played a hard-fought game, and it had ended uh, in a tie, which meant it was overtime. It was time for overtime. And at that time, the way that they ran overtime was they would... Um, it was sudden death overtime, meaning the first team to score in that period ended the game. So the only fair way was to flip a coin to see who would get the ball first. And so they came to midfield, the captains, they met at midfield, they came and they flipped the coin. And uh, one of the captains for the Seahawks was Matt Hasselback, who was their quarterback. And he was so confident that if they got the ball they would score and end the game. That they, they, they called heads, they flipped the coin, I believe it was heads, and the very first thing he said was, We're, you have to say, do you want the ball or do you want to play defense first? And of course, because it's sudden death, everyone wants the ball first. And his response was, we'll take the ball and we're going to score. <laughs> that was his response. He said it and it was picked up by the ref's mic, and so everyone on national TV heard it. A bold claim from this quarterback said, we're going to take the ball first and we're going to drive down and score. Now, that is, a, that is a lofty claim, and it's something that requires a lot of effort, and a lot of things have to go your way for that to happen. But nonetheless, the Packers kicked off to the Seahawks, and they began driving down the field. Uh, in the midst of that drive, Matt Hasselback threw a poor pass that was intercepted by the Green Bay Packers. They ran it all the way back the other way uh, for an interception, and they, they ran all the way back the other way for a touchdown and ended the game. <laughs> His claim was... We're going to score and we're going to win the game when in fact he was the cause of them losing the game. And as a result, uh, he was a laughing stock on many, uh, many a sports center and other uh, reporters for weeks, took his quote and threw it right back in his face. And he was very humbled by that. But when we step out and make a bold claim, you sure better back it up. You sure better back it up. Because if you're going to Put it out there, and you're going to make a bold claim in front of everyone. If you're not able to back it up, you're basically going to become a laughingstock, uh, as so many have experienced in the past. 
But as we look into God's word this morning, we're going to see that no one made bolder claims than Jesus Christ. No one. <laughs> he made incredibly bold claims. In fact, uh, verse 17 through 47, is a, uh, he lays out a number of bold claims concerning who he is. But I, what I love about Jesus Christ is he backed it up. But the reality of, as we work our way through this, as I was studying this week, I came to this conclusion. There's only three logical conclusions concerning Jesus Christ. Only three. The rest simply do not make sense in light of what Jesus said about himself. Okay? The first conclusion, when you begin to look at what Jesus said about himself, meaning it's going to be painstakingly clear that he claims to be God in the flesh. Not a God, but the God from eternity past. And from eternity forward as well. So if you don't believe that, basically you're looking at him and saying, well, he's delusional. <laughs> right? He thinks he's someone that he's not. You know, sometimes as uh, so someone gets older, they may struggle with Alzheimer's or something like that, and they can start to believe things about themselves that aren't true. You know, I had a grandpa that went through that. And we begin to recognize, well, they've, they've lost some of their faculties. It's something that happened with age. Jesus was not losing his mind here. He was, he was just in his 30s. He was a young man, uh, by all accounts. But yet, as he makes these claims, if you look at him and say, well, I can't, I can't accept that, then obviously you believe he's insane. <laughs> because Jesus made it crystal clear, and as we walk through this, you're going to see there's no way around what Jesus is saying about himself. So option number one is that he was insane and he didn't actually, he thought he was something that he was not. Option number two is that he would be the greatest deceiver in history. That he knew exactly who he was, but was claiming to be God in the flesh in order to deceive and lead people astray. Uh, Frank Abagnale was known as uh, one of the greatest con artists in all of American history. There was a movie uh, that kind of depicted his life called Catch Me If You Can. He was um, a confident trickster, a check forger, and an imposter. He became well known for, uh, for successfully claiming uh, no, at least eight different identities, ranging from an airline pilot, a doctor, a U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent, a lawyer, and many others. He successfully um, escaped police custody on, on multiple occasions. He was, uh, he actually convinced people. He was brilliant. He could convince people. He actually played the part of a doctor and actually was convincing a lawyer, an airline pilot, and actually pulled it off. He had a brilliant mind, and what he did is he used it to deceive after spending some time in prison, he was actually hired um, by the, uh, as a federal agent to help stop guys like him in the future. But if, if, if Jesus was not who he says he was, and he was not crazy or insane, then he was the most deceptive person in all of history. And he did a great job at deceiving millions, more like billions, throughout the course of history. So that's option number two in light of what Jesus claims about himself. Option number three is, of course, he is exactly who he says he is. That he is God in the flesh. And he 
as we look in his word, he certainly backed that up in everything he said, he did, and the way he lived. That he is God in the flesh, and as such is a fitting Savior for the world. What I find interesting is much of our world has added a fourth thing. They say, well, it's possible to believe that Jesus was perhaps a God among many, or that he was a good person and a good teacher, but I don't believe the rest. Well, the reality is, how do you say that? How could he be a good man and a good teacher if he's not what he, who he says he was and he was deceiving the world? How could he be a good man and a reliable teacher if he was clinically insane for thinking that he was God? <laughs> the reality is, you either Jesus lays himself out there and there's really only an option to embrace him for who he is or reject him altogether. That's the reality. And what he's doing is he's drawing a line, his line of demarcation in the sand, and he's saying, this is who I am. Either embrace or reject me. As we know, the religious leaders would eventually reject him and put him to death. But as we look at these bold claims about Jesus Christ, let it be clear this morning that he knew he was stating to be God in the flesh, here to be the Savior of the world. We're going to break this into a couple parts, but we're going to look at verses 17 through 29 this morning and examine the bold claims of Jesus. Claim number one, we're going to see in verses 17 through 24, and that is that he claimed equality with God in position. He claimed equality with God in position. Look at verse 17. Let's pick up kind of where we ended last week. He said, But he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so as Jesus is describing himself, he calls uh, God the Father my father, and we'll get into what that means in just a second. They understood in that very moment that he was claiming to be equal with God, and so if Jesus did not believe that about himself, here's his chance to correct their thinking. To say, no, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. <laughs> but he uses that as his springboard to launch into one of the greatest explanations we have in all of Scripture of who Jesus Christ is. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore Jesus had answered and saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. So that the Son... The son, sorry, so that they will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, here is Jesus' big opportunity to clarify uh, they're thinking if they, were, uh, if they were falsely assuming that he was claiming to be God. But Jesus does nothing of the sort. <laughs> he says, not only do you have it right, 
but I'm going to lay out what you will think of as a ton of blasphemous claims as I tell you who I am. So let's work our way through what he claims. But first of all, he claims equality in position with God. The first thing we see, and we kind of touched on this last week, these first two, but I want to reiterate so we can take this in as a whole, is uh, equality in relationship to the Father. Equality in relationship to the Father. Okay, if you weren't with us last week or at the beginning of John, uh, he called him my Father. He was claiming to be his Son. Now, the Jews understood very well what many do not understand today, and that is he was claiming to have the same nature as God and was claiming to be an exact representation and have the same essence. They understood that in their day and age and their culture. A son was thought to be someone who had possessed the same nature. That's why Jews would never dare call God the Father, my Father. They said, our Father. They would never dare to... Um, give themselves that title they would consider that blasphemy and obviously they did here as well because as they heard jesus claim this it sent them into a murderous rage now we often hear terms of son and we always think of physical offspring but in god's word especially in that culture that was not necessarily the case in fact in john chapter 17 verse 12 judas is called the son of perdition or son of destruction does that mean that destruction somehow came together and gave birth to Judas. <laughs> now, we understand that uh, he had a literal physical birth. It, it was a description of who he is, an, identi an identifying mark. And Jesus has a very unique position like no one else, and he is not the physical offspring of the Father, but rather one possessing the same nature. And in fact, Hebrews calls him an exact representation, or in other words, having the same essence. So as they understood this, it became clear and clear, this guy, is con he is fully convinced that he is God. Now Jesus, as he begins to, to explain this, goes a step further as he talks about the Sabbath. Remember the whole reason that this conversation started is because he had healed the man on the Sabbath, which was uh, a big no-no in terms of the legalistic laws the religious leaders had made. So point B, we see in responsibility to continual work without need of rest. Second way, we see he's God. Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. He's saying, listen, me and the father, we're always at work. We never stop. They wanted Jesus to stop doing his work on the Sabbath day, which is ridiculous when you consider what he had done. He had just healed a man. And they were concerned about him exerting too much effort in doing so. So they were saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. He's saying, we never stop working. In fact, you don't want us to stop working. You don't know what you're asking if you say, stop working. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He created all things, and by him all things consist. Okay? So Jesus created the world, and he is preserving it. He's continuing to hold it all together, keeping it in constant motion. So we're saying, Jesus, stop, and he says, you want, really want me to drop what I'm doing? <laughs> you want your whole universe to collapse? Of course he could not listen to what they were saying. That would be like in the summertime, uh, we have a church van out there. It's a 15-passenger van, and in the summertime, I'm usually shuttling kids back and forth to camp quite a bit. Imagine that I'm on the, that I'm on the freeway there. I got the cruise set at 65, because I never go over the speed limit. Um, as I'm driving these, this van, someone comes up to me and sits in the passenger seat and says, John, 
let go of the wheel. Let go of the wheel and get out of the seat. Let's just let the van take us where we're going. <laughs> Say, so you really want me to leave this car unmanned, uh, going, seven, or going 65, yeah, that's right. going 65 <laughs> down the freeway? <laughs> you know exactly what's going to happen if I leave this if I don't pull it over and stop the van if I leave it where it's going and I step away from it and cease to drive it we know what would happen we'd be on the news that night (laughs) the reality is is Jesus cannot stop working and God never takes a day off he's never in need of sleep or slumber remember Sabbath was created for man because God didn't need rest the fact that he rested on the seventh day was just an example to us. But his word is clear, Psalm 121, he's never in need of rest or slumber. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. He's always rescuing and redeeming. He's always holding our world together. He's always at work in his sovereign hand. And so they didn't know really what they were asking because they didn't fully understood, understand who they were talking to. But I love what Jesus says. He says, I and the Father, um, the, what the Father what you see me doing, the Father's on board. He talks about the complete unity within the Godhead. We're completely unified in everything that we're doing. I never work independently of the Father. In fact, if you remember, after going 40 days without food, he was approached by Satan, who attempted to get him to use his power for his own benefit outside of the Father's will, and Jesus refused. Jesus, uh, Jesus and the Father were always in perfect unity they were always perfectly united in everything because they're one god now it's it's hard to wrap our minds around this but we'll continue to work our way through it but that's so important for you to understand is what jesus was saying here is listen if you're accusing me of breaking the sabbath you're also accusing the father of doing so which they would never dare to do they would never think to accuse god the father (laughs) The one who was over the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus even tells them in another place, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) I'm over it. And here you are attacking me for ministering on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is not in any an inferior position or any master-slave position, but this relationship is one of complete unity. I love what it says here, bonded by love. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. There's no secret within the triune Godhead. They're fully aware of each other's actions. And while we recognize the persons within the Godhead, we do not divide the essence. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, but that's why God is God and I am not. I'm really thankful that God is bigger than this brain, that God is bigger than time and space that our God is an incredible God. So he claims that uh, he is, first of all, in relationship to the Father, to his position, he is equal with God. He shares the same responsibility of, uh, of continual work without need of rest. And thirdly, point C, he resides over all as judge. Look at verse 22. It says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now that was another heavy claim because Genesis Back in Genesis 18.25, it says there is one judge over all. In the Old Testament, they understood the Father was the judge. And here is Jesus saying, and the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Yeah, there's one judge. It's God. What is the point he's making? You need to understand, just like the Father is God, I am God. (laughs) 
You know, as you walk into a courtroom, there's how many judges? One. <laughs> Imagine the bailiff is sitting there, and as you're presenting your argument, he goes, well, I'm, I'm prepared to make a ruling. And I say, shut up. We're not here to listen to you. <laughs> they push him aside. Say, you're not the judge. The clerk says, hey, I, I, like to, I like to make my ruling now. No one cares. There's one judge. <laughs> there's one judge. Jesus is not saying I am another among multiple judges. He's saying, yes, there is one judge. And guess what? The Father has committed all that to me. Because I am God, just like He is. Now, as we look at uh, John 3, 18, we see that Jesus did not come to judge, right? John 3, 16 through 18. He did not come into the world to judge. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe is judged already, because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. Our sin has already spoken judgment over us, but here comes the Son as the Savior. And he remains as such until the moment of rejection. As we re, here he is offering himself, offering salvation, but as we die in our sin, having rejected him, suddenly he turns from Savior to judge. We are judged by our sin and held accountable. I love, you know, as we, as we work our way through this, Jesus is claiming all these titles that belong to God and God alone. This is a great parallel to John 1, as John attributes so many attributes of God to Jesus Christ that are only true of God. While it's a difficult concept to, to grasp, the most important thing we understand is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the judge. I work continually without any need of rest. And I have um, a unique position and relationship with the Father that is equal with God. Point D, he deserved respect and honor as God. Move on to verse 23. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Wow. <laughs> it's getting heavier now. He's saying, listen, I deserve respect and honor or the same worship that you would offer to God. Whew. Now, if they thought he was being blasphemous before, certainly they do. <laughs> you know, if, they, if they were on the fence, is, is this really where he's going? Is this really what he's saying? It would have become crystal clear now. Is that a refusal to honor and respect me as God is dishonoring to the Father. Pretty incredible what he's claiming. But you know what? They would, while, while they were angry, while they were blasphemous, guess what? Those very same religious leaders will be on their knees one day confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of creation will come to that realization. Unfortunately, many after their opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ. But as you look throughout Jesus' ministry, he received worship and clearly deserved it. As you watch angels and messengers come to other individuals, delivering a message from God, sometimes it wasn't unusual for people to be so overwhelmed in that moment that they began to worship the messenger. And the messenger, in every instance where it is not God, stops them and says, stop what you're doing right now. <laughs> Stop worshiping me. I'm just a messenger. However, Jesus Christ, remember when he was just a toddler and some magi came from the east 
presented him with gifts and what? <laughs> they came to worship him. They came to worship him. Later, Jesus would walk on water and even allow Peter to walk on water with him. He gets back in the boat in Matthew 14, 36, and they declare, you are the Son of God, and they worship him. You know, what that, you know what's missing there in that passage? Jesus does not rebuke them or stop them because they had gotten it. You are the Son of God. Therefore, we need to worship you as God. As he comes back in his resurrected state, Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. We see that he received worship many times. Every time people came to the right conclusion of who he was, they worshiped him. Chapter 28, verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met and greeted them, and they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for worshiping him. He receives it. And here's the problem. They had no problem worshiping the Father, but they were not about to worship the Son. It would kind of be like this. This is, I guess, the best way I can think. It's so hard when you're talking about the Trinity to even bring in any relatable uh, terms because it's so heavy for our minds. But imagine Siamese twins. Have you seen Siamese twins before? (laughs) I was looking at pictures of some uh, this week. Uh, there was a te- set of teenage girls. They were Siamese twins. Two arms, two legs, two heads. And so as a result, those twins are wearing the same clothes every day. Okay? They share the same body. And everything they do, they must do in complete unity and unison. I don't know their names, but let's imagine for a moment that it's Molly and Megan. Imagine that Molly and Megan walk through the door and someone says to them, Molly, I love that shirt. That whole outfit is just beautiful. Where'd you get it? Then they they turned to Megan and said, who put your outfit together? Who put your outfit together? That doesn't match, that clashes. It's offensive to my eyes. You should go home and change. Would that make any sense whatsoever? (laughs) No, would you think uh, Megan, I forgot my story's confused already. I remember who's who. The one they just complimented would say, hey, you're insulting me too. When you compliment me, you're also complimenting my sister. And when you insult her, you're also insulting me. Or if they come and uh, do a project together and the teacher says to one of them, you did a fantastic job. And to the other, it says, it was below average. Try again. And so we, we did it together. <laughs> we did it together in perfect unison. And here's what the Jews were doing. They're saying, yes, we'll honor the Father. We'll worship the Father. But Jesus, no, no, no. He, he, he's not deserving. He's not in any way equal to or deserving of any of that. And essentially what they were saying in much the same way is, as Jesus says to them, if you're dishonoring me, realize you're dishonoring God and God the Father. And when you honor and worship, you're worshiping God. So as Jesus, was, uh, as Jesus was laying this out before them, they got offended. It's so important as we look at what everything that Jesus is claiming and everything he did. I love what MacArthur had to say about it. He said, So the only possible and right response to the one who created everything, who will bring everything to its consummation, 
and who, by the way, in the middle, upholds everything by the word of his power, the only possible response is that he is to be honored in the same way that God is to be honored. If he's really the creator and sustainer, and as we're going to get to in a minute, the one who gives life and resurrection life, there's only one conclusion we can draw from that, and that is he's to be honored, respected, and worshipped as God, as who he is. So as he begins to lay out, this is who I am, and his equal position with God, he was making it very clear. I have a position like no one else, unique as the Son, equal to God. I have the same responsibilities of continuous work that only God has. I reside overall as God, and I deserve worship and honor just as God, because why? Because he's God in the flesh. Let's pick up at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, he has also given to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming uh, when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come forth. And those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, um, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. As Jesus begins to talk about and, and kind of describe his work and his power, we're going to see that secondly, his second claim, he claimed to have the power of God to raise the dead. Not just physically, but spiritually. This is the greatest demonstration we see in Jesus' life and ministry, and in his ministry today, his greatest explanation of the fact that he is God, as he showed his power over death. He showed his power over death. And he talks about four different resurrections, and we're going to work through them quickly here this morning. The first thing is that he gives resurrection life to the spiritually dead. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me will have eternal life. Saying, by my word, you can have life eternal. But I love what he says. He says, you're also believing in the one who sent me. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. It's so important to understand What's being, this is a great parallel, kind of mirrors this passage in a lot of ways and what Jesus is trying to convey. It says in the Old Testament, God th spoke through the prophets proclaiming this coming Messiah. It's full of pictures and prophecies pointing to what was to come. And the Old Testament saints, they believed in what God had revealed and looking forward uh, to the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers um, in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purifications from sin, and he has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He says, 
You believe the Old Testament, right? You believe what has been delivered to you already. Well, I'm here to deliver the rest. <laughs> I'm here to deliver the rest. In the Old Testament, he spoke through uh, the, the prophets. He spoke through uh, maybe their forefathers they looked up to. And he says now, and then here he is presenting himself. He is speaking through his son. He says, if you will believe what I'm telling you. Remember, way back in Isaiah, you were told that there was one who would come who would be wounded for your transgressions, pierced for your iniquities. The punish, punishment of your sin would be laid upon him, and by his wounds you would be healed. <laughs> you believe that? Now here was Jesus presenting himself to them, presenting truth. And he says, if you will simply listen to what I'm saying, you can have life. If you would listen to the message I'm proclaiming, you will find life. He has the power to give life to those who are spiritually dead. He had just finished showing that he had power to heal a crippled man. In a short period of time in his ministry, we'd see that he had the, he'd have the, the power to literally give life to someone who was physically dead. Those are all to drive a point. I have power over death. And what does sin do? It condemns you to death and separation. I have power over that. And if we would simply listen to his message that he is the way, the truth, and the life, put our faith in him, we would experience resurrection life. That is what he's claiming, the power to, to do just that. Secondly, we see that he will lay down his life and raise it up again. I love this statement in verse 26. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he is given to the Son, or even so the Son also has life in himself. You know what that phrase means? That Jesus was never created by anyone. The Son was never created. He has always been and does not depend upon anyone or anything for life. That is true of one and one alone, and that is God. If you are doubting at any point throughout this message what Jesus is claiming, you cannot refute that. Jesus said, I have life in myself. The, the theological term is self-existent. Self-existent. Man, that's a powerful thing to claim. Especially if it's not true. <laughs> to have life in himself. It means that Jesus has never depend, been dependent upon anything and he never will depend upon anything. That's why Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. Remember that? I willingly lay it down. But he also promised I will take it up again. Three days later, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to raise myself again. Which validated everything that Jesus said about having life in himself. And I love what 1 Corinthians 15.20 said. It says, He then becomes the first fruits of resurrection. If he can give life, if he has life in himself, then he has the power to raise those who are spiritually dead in sin. And remember what these religious leaders and so many in that day failed to understand is they were dead and hopeless in their sin and they were in need of a Savior. You know, today, I, so many companies sometimes will make false claims in order to market themselves or sell a lot of their product. I read about a company recently who uh, they claimed that their product was, they were a juice company, were, was all natural, nothing but fruit in there. Nothing else. But the FTC, among others, put those products to the test to make sure that they're being valid in their claims. <laughs> I'll tell you what, when it's discovered that you are not valid in your claims, 
you're slapped often with a, a lawsuit, a heavy fine, because often you've profited off those claims. Well, it was found that this particular company was actually um, adding a lot to um, their particular fruit juice, which they claimed was all natural, because it was expensive to make it that way. They were saving money. <laughs> As a result, they faced a hefty fine and a lawsuit. They were called out because they weren't able to validate their claims, and they profited off of it. But Jesus validated his claim the moment he rose from the, from the dead. He appeared to 500 people in a resurrected state. He validated everything he said about himself. So he's not a lunatic. He's not a liar or a deceiver. He is exactly what he claimed to be God in the flesh. Thirdly, not only will he raise himself, but he will return to raise and transform the bodies of the church or those in Christ. I love this. He says, do not marvel. In other words, you might, your mind might be blown, but brace yourself, there's more. <laughs> do not marvel, for an hour is coming in which those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. And those who did good deeds to a resurrection life and those who committed evil deeds um, to a resurrection of judgment. It's not talking about deeds earning our salvation. The only deed that matters is that of faith. But there's no way to say uh, the, the way you see our faith often is expressed in our lives. But as he's saying here, I love this. He's saying those, those who heard my word, those who believe there's a day coming, they're going to experience a, a resurrection. Meaning that the tombs are going to be open. People are going to rise. You know, now as we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. Our body stays here. That empty shell stays here on earth. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 58, reminds us there's a day coming when that body is going to be raised and transformed. Now, for some, there's not going to be much left of that body. <laughs> but God's used to making something out of nothing, right? <laughs> not too difficult for him. Whether there's dust, ashes, or really hardly any remnants of all. He's going to raise our bodies and he's going to transform them. See, I believe as you walk through God's word, it's clear there's a day coming when he's going to rapture his church. That's going to be followed by a period of judgment and then a thousand year reign of Christ. And then after that is when we see this, uh, this final uh, we see these resurrection take place. First, we see we go and we meet the Lord in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Later, before we step into the new heaven and the new earth that lasts for all of eternity, he raises these bodies, but they're nothing like the body you have now, and thank the Lord for that. They're ones that will last for all of eternity. Immortal, sinless, perfect, fit for heaven. I think the best descriptions that we can begin to piece together in our minds are some of what we see in Jesus' body in his resurrected state. It won't be limited and confined like these bodies. And he prays God for that. He says, just as sure as I'm going to raise myself, I'm going to come back. I'm going to open up these tombs. <laughs> I'm going to raise these bodies. I'm going to change them. I'm going to change them. Pretty incredible to look forward to that. What he's saying is, not only was I God, not only am I God, but I will always be God. That's the point I believe he's making here. <laughs> not only do I have the power that only God has, uh, but there's so much yet to come, so much yet to look forward to, and we don't have time to dive into all of that.
today. But I love what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says, comfort each other with these words. These bodies are breaking down. We're living in this sin-cursed world. Look forward to the day when we trade them in for new ones. Amen? Then he finishes with one more sobering thought. Look at verse 29. He says, And those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. He will also raise um, the lost who will receive condemnation for their sin. You know what the lost uh, talks about the eternal lake of fire. Right now, those, those in hell today, they will be raised. They will also experience a resurrection. But it will be a resurrection to stand before the judgment seat. They stand before the white, uh, the white throne judgment seat. And the great white throne judgment, and they receive their fitting judgment, the judgment that we all deserved, eternal separation from God. I pray this morning that's a heavy reality for us. We often look forward to exchanging our bodies for an eternal one. But guess what? Even, even those who do not know the unregenerate, those who do not embrace Christ, will also experience a resurrection, will also live eternally. But in hell. I, that just struck me this last week. The fact, you know, I, I look forward to that day and to realize and just to be reminded of the fact that the resurrection will be a lot broader than just those who have trusted in Christ. Also be those we, who will be brought out to face their final judgment. And by the way, that's exactly why Christ came. It's exactly what he, why he came. He came because that was the reality for all of us. But he came to offer life and forgiveness. You know, maybe you've uh, become familiar with the story of Louis Zamperini. He was the, in fighting in World War II when their plane went down 850 miles off the coast. He and two of his um, crewmates were the only ones who survived. And they then would float and live in a raft for the next 47 days, surviving a Japanese bomber from above, <laughs> attacks from uh, sharks and other fish from below. And they managed to survive for 47 days. And then finally... Uh, they reached uh, the Marshall Islands where they were immediately captured and taken into a prison camp. <laughs> Just as they thought, you know, they, they'd reached that point where uh, after 47 days, it almost seemed like rescue was happening. But now there was so much more ahead. There's much worse stuff yet to come. And that is the reality, and that is the sobering reality, and that is the reality that I hope makes your stomach churn this morning and drives us to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel is that resurrection isn't just for believers. Also, be those who be resurrected, they will face judgment and then face eternity separated from God. But listen, Jesus uh, even had power to raise those who rejected him. Understand that he came to give life. As you look in his word, he's not willing that any should perish and all should come to repentance. He's a patient, we serve a very patient God who continues to delay this inevitable judgment that is coming to allow more people to come to him. That's a great God that we serve. You know, as we examine these claims together and look at who he is and who he said he is, it's important that we, we step back and say, okay, now where am I at? 
there's not really a, there's no there's no middle ground there's no room to hang on the fence and say i believe this and this about jesus and i accept or i deny this and this he's either insane a deceiver or a, he is your savior it says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, me alone. That's it. He's either that or he's the other. <laughs> he can't be both good and a, de- and a deceiver. He can't be a great person to follow and clinically insane. <laughs> he must be God in the flesh. In 1932, Babe Ruth uh, became famous for calling his shots as the New York Yankees in the fifth inning of Game 3 of the 1932 World Series uh, at Wrigley Field in, the, in Chicago. During his first at-bat, Ruth made a pointing gesture, which exists on film today and has been confirmed, although the exact nature of the gesture remains ambiguous. Although neither fully confirmed nor refuted, the story goes that Ruth pointed to the center field bleachers during that at-bat. And allegedly, it was a declaration of where he would hit the home run. On the next pitch, Ruth hit his home run to center field. Uh, The homer was his 50th and last in his 41 postseason games. (laughs) There's a Wikipedia page about that today. You research Babe Ruth calling his shot. It's still infamous nearly 100 years later. Why? (laughs) Because he followed through. Because he made a... He made a claim and followed through. Jesus made some, incredible, uh, some incredibly bold claims, the greatest of which was to have life in himself. And then he resurrected himself from the grave, <laughs> proving that he is who he says he is, God in the flesh, and proving that he can give life to those who come to him, those who believe on his word. This morning I ask you, Will you receive Jesus on his terms for who he is? Or are you rejecting him altogether? There really is no middle ground. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that your word is uh, spoken clearly to our hearts. Jesus did not come just to be a good example, a good teacher. He came to be the Savior to those who were lost and helpless in their sin, those who were dead and lifeless, those who needed to be resurrected, who needed spiritual life. Lord, we were already condemned by our sin, but Jesus Christ came down and he lived a sinless life. But then he willingly went to the cross. He willingly took our place as our substitute. And then he offers us a way of forgiveness if we would only put our faith in him alone, in his finished work on the cross, his sacrifice. And then he rose from the grave, validating every claim that he made. Or we didn't need a man, we needed God. We needed God in the flesh. We didn't need a mere man to come and rescue us. We needed nothing short of God in the flesh. We know that's what Jesus claimed to be and that we know that's what Jesus proved to be. But today that means, Lord, we can cling to his promises. I pray that anyone in the room this morning who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ alone as God, as their Savior, this morning they would come in simple faith. They would come to you and say, Lord, I know I am helpless in my sin. 
I know that I'm dead, I'm separated from you. But I also know that while I was in that helpless state, God became flesh. Jesus Christ came down to be my substitute. And today, I am renouncing everything, every false conclusion I've ever had about him. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save me. He is my Savior. He alone. Lord, I pray that uh, you continue to take whatever ideas we have of Jesus Christ and shatter them and just replace them with who he is. Lord, we thank you for the promises that we stand upon today. Uh, But Lord, may it also drive us to have the same compassion that caused Jesus to cry out while on the cross for those who are crucifying him. May you fill us with that compassion. May you compel us, Lord, to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel this week. Because that same Jesus wants to rescue today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and you are dismissed.